My father was uh, in many ways a brilliant man, um, professor and uh, theologian and very well respected in the communities that he served. And I experienced this one day, which was absolutely incredible to me. I, I was amazed at the brilliance of what happened after a lecture that I attended where he spoke on the Middle East. And at the end of the lecture, one of the students, um, one of the students asked the question, to whom does Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, belong? And instead of giving some um, elongated biblical answer, without looking at any notes, he started with the foundation of the city that was on a hill and went through all the dates when the city was conquered by whom from the start until the present day. At the end, everybody in the hall stood up and just started applauding. <laughs> I mean, he, he didn't look at a note. He just went through, and this year it was conquered by this people, and this year it was conquered by this people, and this year it was conquered. And I, I sat there absolutely astonished. I, I really was. It was just, how did he do that? <laughs> And over the years, I have thought about that a lot simply because the name Jerusalem means the city of peace. So it looks like, historically speaking, you have what was established to be a city of peace. And in David's day, it became the capital of Jerusalem. It became the capital of Israel. And you had all of the encounters when David brought the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant back into the city where the presence of God was there. I mean, this is some incredible events, but you have one, a city where God dwells, and at the other hand, you've got a city named for peace that was the center of wars. And over the years, it has become the center for the three great monotheistic religions of the world, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam. And all of them look to the Temple Mount as being a holy site for all three of them. The Temple Mount was built on what in the Old Testament was Mount Moriah, where Abraham went up to sacrifice his son Isaac and, and uh, it is considered still to this day by all three religions to be a holy place. <laughs> I've thought about that. I, I don't know whether it just seems strange to me that there's a claim over this and at the same time it is a place of war, and it's supposed to be a place of peace. And as we saw throughout the story of 
Luke as he starts off moving towards Jerusalem for the final time where a good half of his his gospel is focused on going to Jerusalem and he sticks in Jerusalem. He doesn't diverge from that and he sees Jerusalem as being the focal point from which the world's greatest movement is going to take place. I I mean, it's kind of, to me, I'm looking at why, God, did you pick a city that is in an arid country that's small, in the Mediterranean somewhere, (laughs) you know, that seems so insignificant in the in, in, in the whole trade routes that come east and west, and yet you chose that to be the center from which the world is going to be blessed. I, I, I look at that, and then I go back, and I start to read what happens after the resurrection until the ascension, and finally what happens after that. Um, let's look at our text today because we've, we, we started off, isn't it interesting that Luke ends on the day of the resurrection, Mark ends at the day of the resurrection, Matthew doesn't make much distinction between the day of the resurrection and the end of his gospel, whenever that is, But we do know that John continues. He doesn't just stop on the day of the resurrection. But in all four Gospels, on the day of the resurrection, Jesus gives a command, doesn't he? He says, this is what I want you to do. We looked at this in Luke. It's, I've done my work, and now the unfinished work is is ahead of us. And you need to understand the, the background to it, and you are being commissioned. In, uh, in, in uh, John, we saw, as the Father has sent me, that's how I am sending you. In Matthew, we saw that go into all the world and make disciples of every ethnic group and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. In Mark, it was go into all the world and preach the gospel. And certain signs and miracles are going to follow that. At the end of it, Jesus says they went out preaching and the Lord worked with them, confirming the word with signs and wonders following. Now we turn to Acts, and I'm not going to read to the commission This week, I'll end up doing that next week. But let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The first account I composed, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, 
appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. Now, I look at all of the struggles surrounding the resurrection. And instead of just jumping straight from the day of the resurrection to uh, the day of the ascension, let's take a look at what happens that we know of in those 40 days that took place. We don't have a lot, but we do have some. And if I, if I look at what's going on, I, I do know that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, um, sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says uh, this, uh, For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, uh, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, who also became the leader, the chief elder of the church in Jerusalem. And then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So now we see that throughout those 40 days, there were several appearances of Jesus which are not recorded elsewhere, but that he has made special appearance both to individuals and to whole groups of people. And we know that whatever he's doing this, he's talking about the kingdom of God. Um, isn't it interesting that that also happens um, while they're struggling to understand what they're seeing? And Jesus, when he first appears, gives them a command, this is important, to go. He tells them what is required of them, that this is what they're supposed to do. Now, John gives us probably the greatest insight into uh, this whole event. Um, as a matter of fact, in, in chapter 20, verse... Uh, 30, sorry, in, in 26, verse 26, he says, and after eight days again, so now we've gone from the resurrection eight days later, he says eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them and Jesus came to the doors having been shut and uh, came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered unto him and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So even amongst the disciples eight days later, 
there's a struggle with their believing the issue of the resurrection. They're struggling with that. And then comes something even more astonishing to me personally. I, it says here in verse 30, Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he's addressing, John is addressing you and me in this, but he's saying there was a lot more that Jesus did in the presence of the disciples, miracles that took place. That's fascinating, isn't it? So here we have every single gospel points to the fact that he is commissioning them to go do something. We have the appearances of Jesus. We have him teaching and doing works and signs and wonders in order for people to believe. I mean, he's making every effort that something's going to happen. And the next chapter, chapter 21, is like it doesn't belong here. It's out of place. What happens in John chapter 21? In John chapter 21, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, Tiberias is not in Jerusalem. <laughs> the sea is in Galilee. And we read there that Simon Peter, in verse 3, said to the other disciples, after he's heading off to Galilee, he says, I'm going fishing. in spite of having seen the resurrected Jesus, in spite of having been in the tomb, in spite of having heard Jesus tell him specifically to go, he's being commissioned to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every single ethnic group, he says, I'm going fishing. He has had all the miracles he has had all the revelations, and instead of it transforming his life, he says, I am going back to the old ways, the ways that were before I met Jesus. In other words, he is in the midst of a great personal struggle, and he cannot cope with one the issue that he had denied Jesus. Two, he's wrestling with the fact that Jesus has appeared to them and given them a commission that he feels incredibly inadequate to do. He understands the fear that comes with it. He doesn't understand how Jesus was able to face his accusers with such patience and such peace on the inside when they were out to kill him. He doesn't understand that Jesus didn't take up the, the call of angels in order to reestablish the kingdom of God on earth. Why didn't he destroy 
uh, uh, Herod, and, and why didn't he, dis- who also tried, to, Herod, his predecessor, tried to kill him as a baby, and then he, he's after him again as an adult. Why doesn't he raise up an army and destroy the Roman Empire? Why doesn't he establish a political kingdom on this earth? And, and he's struggling with all this that he had been taught. That's what the kingdom of God was about through the Old Testament. And now Jesus is alive and he's still not doing it. He sees and perceives the entire world from one particular perspective. And that is why me. His whole life is caught up still in this me-centeredness, this self-centeredness of his own inadequacies, of his own inabilities, his own mistakes. He blew it so many times when he was with Jesus, in spite of the things that he has seen, in spite of all this other stuff that happened, you would think that he, of all people, would be the one that would be most solid in his faith. And even when Jesus comes to him, after he comes to meet with him on the shore of that lake and he swims to get get to him, Jesus says, do you love me? And and he struggles with that one because he says, do you love me with God's love? And he answers, I love you as a brother. And he, he, he says, don't you love me as God loves? And he says, you know, I can't. You, you know what I did. <laughs> and Jesus comes down to him and says, do you love me with the love of a brother? And he's broken by that because he hasn't got what it really takes. And yet Jesus turns to him again with those two words, follow me. He doesn't cast him aside. He doesn't throw him out. He doesn't tell him off. You see, Peter struggled, struggled with forgiveness. Struggled to believe that God could really forgive, really cleanse, and not hold it against him. He struggled with the fact that in his inadequacies and in his, his simpleness, that God would really love him. He struggled with those realities. It's not just a matter of having seen miracles. It's not a matter of having the greatest teacher invest in you. It's not just a matter of things on the outside looking great. It's a struggle of the heart on the inside where he runs away from himself because he doesn't understand the depth of the forgiveness of God that deals with the depth of his sin. That no matter how great the sin is, the love of God is greater than that. You see, he is still caught up in a very narrow mindset of me and my world and my family and my immediate surroundings, and he doesn't see the big picture at all. 
God who has come to save the world. The world. He has come to redeem mankind from every pathway that exists. There is nobody that is excluded from him. And Peter is sitting there dealing with himself. See how small that is compared to the bigness? And now Jesus comes to them. He gathers them together on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. I love this particular, this particular verse here. It says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, <laughs> he, he only started. He wrote a whole book, 24 chapters, <laughs> about what Jesus began to do. Now he's going to go on and tell us some of the rest of the story, which unfortunately he didn't finish because Jesus is still doing and still teaching. He hasn't stopped doing the work confirming the word that's being preached. I want to tell you that the, the word he began that doesn't begin to cover the whole focus of what Jesus is continuing to do today. He hasn't stopped. The one who was raised from the dead has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. Both, both. The devil does not have greater power than Jesus. Sometimes you may think he does, but he doesn't. Jesus was clear in all that he shared. You don't, you don't fear the one who can harm your body. <laughs> you need to fear the one who can put you into eternal hell. There's a difference. There's a big difference between the two. Now, he takes these disciples together and he says to them that, that he's given them orders. He had given those that he had chosen orders. Isn't that interesting? He, he's... He, he's He's still going to be doing and teaching, and then he gives them orders. And I think I, I wrestle with this all the time in working with missionaries who believe they've been called by God, and then they take one look at the field of service that they want to go to, and then they think about having to learn a language, having to learn a culture, having to adapt to different kinds of food, to, to learning how, uh, to, I mean, if you don't understand the humor of another group of people, you, 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 how are you going to understand their thinking in the way that they are? And suddenly they get so overwhelmed and when they're present on the field after about a year. I mean, it's great to go visit any country for two weeks. I mean, anybody can do that, you know. <laughs> 
but after you've been there for a year and you start getting homesick and you want the food that your mom cooked and you want you're just sitting there saying I don't understand these people they just don't I don't understand how their thinking gets them that way you know and you sit there shaking your head and, and you say I'm just not going to manage this and how many struggle at that point they have to work through that to get to the place where they can start to feel at home in a new place and and the same thing is here it is an issue for every single person because the culture of heaven is radically different than the culture of any place on earth. <laughs> when you get to heaven, you're not going to be in America. When you get to heaven, we're not going to be in Germany. When you get to heaven, <laughs> you're not going to be in a place like any nation on earth, it is indescribable beyond what we can imagine. And in that place, there is an entirely different rule than the kind of rule that you have here. Entirely different. And the kingdom of heaven moves not on the basis of our work and our effort, but upon both the will of the Father and the beauty of his love. And to get there requires that we actually are forced to understand something about the free gift of God. So, he's been together with them in verse 3 for 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then in verse 4, he says this, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. That's the first thing. Whatever's going to happen, in spite of all the evil that the devil has tried to do to disrupt and destroy God's will and purpose, you start here where they killed me. And it's going to begin from there and then it's going to go out from there, but you wait until you receive a gift. He says, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Which, he said, you heard from me. Now, I, I took a look at a few of the things that Jesus promised. <laughs> There's a bundle of promises, but one of them I like is in uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2 and verse 25 it says and this is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life Isn't that a beautiful verse this is the promise that he made to us he goes on to explain this is a promise we receive this, this morning Jan passed out um 
a free gift to you. How many of you earned that gift today? Anybody? Did anybody work for it? Did anybody earn the gift that Jan gave you? <laughs> I guess nobody did. How many of you deserved it? How many of you enjoyed it? <laughs> There's still some left over. You're welcome to have another one. As long as, as they're there, you're welcome to have another one. <laughs> in, in, in John chapter 14... It says this. Did I put this one up too? No, I didn't. In uh, John chapter 14. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him and does not know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Um, I take a look at the things that Jesus promises. One of the things he taught his disciples was to pray for forgiveness. And he relates that to forgiveness in what we forgive relates to how the Heavenly Father forgives us. He talks to us about the gift of salvation. And he talks to us about the gift of the promise. When I look at the gift of the promise, that actually goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God says that he's going to bless Abraham and through him all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the promise, in Galatians we read this, the promise was to Abraham and his seed, singular meaning Jesus. So if the promise is to Abraham and to his seed who is Jesus, then it happens through Jesus that all the nations of the earth all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And I take a look at this promise and suddenly Jesus says to the disciples who are still struggling with their own personal issues, with their own personal focus, their own depth of lack of vision and lack of perspective and lack of what God wants to do and wants to begin to do through them that through reproduction and multiplication will change the course of mankind. They, they don't see that yet. And so he tells them, this is going to happen because you are going to get gifts. 
And I want to put it in the plural. He says you wait for the promise. But when I read in Romans 12 about gifts or in 1 Corinthians 13 about gifts or in Ephesians chapter 4 about gifts, wherever I read about gifts, there's a variety of gifts. There is a splendor of gifts and functions that Jesus wants to impart to his people if only they are willing to receive. How difficult was it to receive the gift that Jan gave you this morning? Was that, was that a struggle? Did you, did you get down on your knees and have to beg Jan to give you one? Was, it, was there any effort on your part when it came? No, you put your hand out and you received it. And when God starts to pour out gifts, when he wants to give them, he will do it in an abundance because the nature of God is the nature of a giver. He doesn't withhold. When we pray, we expect and anticipate a God who will answer and give something in answer to the prayer that we pray. We come with a basic understanding that God is a giver of every good and perfect gift. We come with an understanding that God who gives gifts is also going to be a God who is going to use those gifts to bless. He's not going to give because he's selfish or he's trying to get something for himself. He blesses people with rain who deserve it and those who don't deserve it. He gives, he gives an abundance to people who have earned it and to those who have not earned it. He doesn't have favorites, but he is one who yearns in the midst of his blessing that people will turn back to him. Not like the ten lepers where only one comes back to thank him. He's looking for all ten to come back. He's looking for every single one who receives something from him in the midst of that in order to, to start to do something with the gift that he's given. And namely, that if God is a giver and I am touched by the nature and the character and the values of who God is, that my nature and character is transformed into that of a giver. Now, I've been around enough poverty in my life to know that giving money to every situation, just throwing money at it, does not appease either my conscience, nor does it appease the issue that they're dealing with in their own poverty. I can only, through that, sometimes make it worse. But I do know that everybody needs love. I do know that everybody needs acceptance. I know that everybody needs forgiveness because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I know that when I preach the gospel and I'm standing in the midst of a famine and the people are gathered around me in northern Uganda and listening to the gospel and they say, now give us something to eat, my response to them was still, you need to trust Jesus for your eternal soul. If you eat today, you'll be hungry tomorrow. But if you die today and go to hell, it's not worth it. There's a lot of difference. 
And in the process of putting priorities in my life, I do more by loving people, by exposing them to the truth, even as Jesus did. And I need to do it in an attitude of humility and concern and care and patience and kindness because I am concerned for their eternal welfare. I don't hold back even when they threaten me. Why? Because God didn't hold back when I needed the depth of forgiveness that I got. You see, these guys can't go until they've got the gift. They need to be in a receptive mode in order for Jesus to work alongside them. They need to be in listening mode to hear what the Spirit is saying. They need to be in going mode so that they do the things that Jesus is telling them to do. They need to be in listening mode so that they speak the things that Jesus wants them to speak or hold their tongue when Jesus wants them to hold their tongue. You see, the, the, the whole thing about walking with Jesus and following Jesus is that it's a relationship and not a system that has been organized that you follow through on. It's a personal relationship where we walk with him and whenever I'm in a struggle and I need something, <laughs> Lord, I need a gift. When our daughter was weeping the night through beside the bed of her daughter in the intensive care unit after two brain surgeries, she had no idea what the outcome was going to be. She was in receiving mode. She said, I can't do anything, Lord. I can't do it. And the truth is, there is no way that you can save even one person on the face of this planet. Only Jesus can do that. And if we don't understand that it's only Jesus, then we start to think that it's because of our fancy words or our fancy programs or our fancy whatever it is that we have. We have misunderstood the power of the Holy Spirit to convict people of sin, which is His job and not mine. It's the power of Jesus to forgive, not mine. It is the power of Jesus to save. I can't do that. What I can do is when Jesus moves in my heart, I can forgive those that I never thought I could. It's a gift. I can love those that are unlovely. It's a gift. I can love people that are different to me. That's a gift. And we need to be the people who are open to receiving the gifts of God. The gifts that are valuable and important. And sometimes we just need to take a few days out and say, Lord, here I am. And I'm just stretching out and saying, I need renewal in my life. I need you to impact my life. I need you, Lord Jesus, because I can't do this on my own. And if I'm left on my own, I'm going fishing. 
If I'm left on my own, I'm going back to the old ways. If I'm left on my own, I am not going to continue to walk with you and follow you. If I'm left on my own, I can't manage a life in the Spirit. I can't do it on my own. I can only do it when you bless me with the gifts that are needed for me this day. One of the most incredible things about the Christian walk is that not only does Jesus expect us to ask, he expects us to receive. And he wants to give. He yearns to give. Not only do we receive such marvelous gifts from the gift giver, but having done that, as we will see throughout the book of Acts, we become gift givers ourselves. And the whole focus of our lives is how do we give the gifts of Jesus to others? And it's a lifelong discovery, as we will see through this book, that Jesus continues to work with all of his disciples, and he teaches with his disciples, and teaches his disciples along the line. I mean, he's going to do both. He's going to teach, teach us, and he will teach through us. But as the whole thing starts to develop and grow, it's a matter of receiving and giving. Receiving and giving. And it happens in every force of, of our lives, in our families, in our church, in ministries, in functions within the church. It needs to be seen not as work, but as gifts. Gifts that Jesus gives and that Jesus wants to give. And he doesn't want to exclude any one of us from his generosity that he wants to pour into our lives. Lord Jesus, I pray that today as we, as we come before you, that we would open our hearts to the variety of gifts that you give that meet the needs of the moment and the situation that we're in. We pray, Lord, that you would open us to be channels of your gifts as well. That the things that you impart to us, that we willingly and graciously give to others. Lord, let us become like you to be gift givers. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.